first couple of verses, and then we'll open the word of prayer. Acts chapter 21 and verse 1, it says, And it came to pass that after we were gotten from them and had launched, we came with a straight course under Coos, and the day following under Rhodes, and from thence unto Patara. And finally, the ship sailing over unto Phoenicia, we went abroad and set forth. Let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you for the privilege that it is to be here, Lord, to come around your holy word and to learn from it, to instruct it through it. Lord, we pray that today you would indeed refresh each of us through your word, you bless us through it today, challenge us through it. Lord, I pray that you give me wisdom and guidance as I speak, that Lord, indeed, it would be your words, it would be your thoughts this morning. Lord, may you have a hand upon us now in this time that we spend around your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in chapter 20, of course, we concluded with seeing a sorrowful uh, goodbye between Paul and the Ephesian elders. If you just go back to chapter 20 and verse 36, it says, And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake that he should not see, sorry, that they should not see his face no more, uh, and they accompanied him unto the ship. And so it was a very sorrowful goodbye. We saw them kneeling down and praying and, and they're falling upon Paul and they're weeping. Uh, this was a sorrowful time for these elders to say goodbye to Paul, this one who'd had such a, an influence upon their life. I mean, he brought them the gospel message. He'd He'd taught them, he'd instructed them, he'd stayed with them and discipled them in the truth. He'd, he'd seen them grow spiritually. And so it was, a, it was a, a sorrowful time as they're saying goodbye to Paul there as he enters into the ship. And as verse 21, uh, sorry, as chapter 21 begins, we see that, you know, it was just as hard for Paul to leave as it was for them to say goodbye. In chapter 21 and verse 1, it says, And it came to pass that after we were gotten from them and had launched, we came with a straight course under Coos. That phrase there where it says that after we were gotten from them, that phrase actually literally means to wrench away or to drag away. And so what Luke is telling us there is he's saying that this was a very difficult goodbye. He's saying that Paul and, and his companions, they had to reach, literally drench, wrench themselves away. They had to drag themselves away, tear themselves away from these brethren. Okay, they didn't want to leave. They neither wanted each other to leave. They, it was a difficult time. For Paul and for the Ephesians, such was his love for them and, and their love for him. You know, that farewell address that we spent so much time looking at in, in chapter 20 there, that farewell address to the Ephesian elders, that really marks the end of Paul's missionary work as recorded for us by Luke in the book of Acts. That really is the end of his missionary work. From this point on, we see Paul continue his journey down to Jerusalem uh, where he's arrested and he's imprisoned, and he's subject to various trials before he's put on a ship and he's sent to Rome. And basically that's the end of his, his missionary journeys as recorded here in the book of Acts. Of course, he does much more for the Lord. But as is recorded here, from this point on, it really records his journey to Jerusalem, his arrest and his trip to Rome and the events that take place. And, you know, Paul was well aware of what was before him. He was aware that uh, trials were awaiting him, imprisonment was, was coming, he told the Ephesian elders as much back in chapter 20 and verse 23, where it says, uh, Save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city 
saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. And so he was aware that bonds and afflictions were waiting for him at Jerusalem. Uh, he didn't know everything that was going to happen, but he knew that the road ahead was not going to be easy. But this didn't dampen or um, you know, um, weaken his resolve to do the will of the Lord. And as chapter 21 now begins, uh, we see Paul continuing this journey uh, down the coast towards Jerusalem. And from verse 1, it seems that Paul and his companions are, are on a smaller vessel, a coastal vessel, and they're just sort of land hopping. They're going around the coast, stopping in at each little city along the way. It says there in verse 1, uh, And it came to pass that after we were gotten from them and had launched, we came with a straight course under Coos, and the day following under Rhodes, and from thence unto Patara. If you look at the map, basically what they're doing is they're just hopping down the coastline. They're stopping in at each little city. It's, it's a coastal vessel, uh, taking time, if you like, to go down the coast. And we read that when they finally arrive in Patara, they now change vessels. Okay, verse 2, it says, And finding a ship sailing over unto Phoenicia, we went abroad and set forth. And so they now change ships here, okay, in verse 2. They find a ship now that's going uh, in a direct route, if you like, to Phoenicia, to Syria, to where they want to be. And so they change. Okay, and this ship is going directly across the open sea, uh, and it's a journey of around 650 kilometers. So this is a few days' journey on this ship. Uh, so rather than hugging the coastline, it's, it sets out in the open sea and goes straight across, which makes it a much swifter journey. Uh, hence the reason they change ships here. And in verse 3, we're told that they uh, discover Cyprus and they leave it on the left hand. Okay? And Cyprus is that island there in the middle of the, the Mediterranean. So basically it means they've come down below it, okay? below, below the island of Cyprus there. And they finally then land in Syria at the city of Tyre. Okay? Let's just read all of verse 3 there. It says, Now when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand and sailed into Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unlaid her, sorry, unlay laid her burden. And so they arrive now in Tyre. Okay, and this is where Luke now sort of picks up the story a bit more and he gives us more details. He spends some time speaking about the events that take place in both Tyre and in the city of Caesarea uh, before they finally arrive in Jerusalem. In both of these places, Paul is warned. He's warned concerning the, the trial that is ahead of him, what he is going to face in Jerusalem. And so this morning, we just want to spend some time considering these two warnings, the warning in Tyre and the warning in Caesarea, and also Paul's response. And so first of all, this morning, we see the warning at Tyre. Uh, just read again there, the end of verse 3. It says, And landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unlaid her burden. And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. Um. So they land in Tyre, and while Paul and his companions are waiting for the ship, okay, the ship is there, it's, unla it's unloading its burden, it's unloading its cargo, okay, and it's taking on new cargo before they continue the journey. And so while they're there, while they're waiting, we're told that they find a group of disciples. And it says there in verse 4, it says, and finding disciples. And that phrase actually indicates that they actually went looking for them. Okay? It's not like it's just by chance they ended off the ship and they ran into some believers. What it's saying is that as Paul and the others left the ship, they actually went out in the city and looked for. They looked for the believers. They went searching for disciples. 
And this is the first time we see the city of Tyre mentioned in the book of Acts. We haven't seen it before mentioned in connection with Paul. He's traveled through the region of Syria and Phoenicia, but he hasn't actually stopped in at Tyre, at least not what's recorded here. And so it would seem that this is Paul's first visit to the city of Tyre. And so he's using his time wisely, isn't he? He's using his time actively. He thinks, I'm going to go and see the brethren, see if there's some believers here in the city. And we're not told who started this church. We're not told who brought the the gospel to the region. But it's likely that it was started by the believers who fled the persecution in Jerusalem. Remember, years before this, Persecution had arisen in Jerusalem, and it was led by none other than Paul, okay, Saul, before he got saved. He had been the one at the, at the head of that persecution. If you just quickly turn back to Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11 and verse 19, it says, Now, when, oh, sorry, now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, travelled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but the Jews only. And so here we've got mentioned these ones who were scattered abroad because of the persecution and talks about them going to the region of Phoenicia, which is this same area, Syria, the same place, Tyre. And so it seems that these are the ones who started this work, okay, who evangelised this area, these Jews who fled from Jerusalem under the persecution of none other than Paul. It was him who was heading it up. And so the irony of it all is that even when Paul was working against the Lord, God was using him, wasn't he? Even when Paul was working against God, God used Paul's actions to further his work, to further the spread of the gospel. And so Paul now is in this city with these believers and they stay there for a whole week. He finds these believers and immediately Paul... You know, as, as you do with fellow believers, you, you struck up a, a friendship, don't you? There's a common love. There's a, uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so they dwell a whole week with these newfound brothers and sisters. And it seems that, you know, Paul is no longer in a hurry. He's quite content to spend a week uh, to slow down and spend some time with these believers. If you go back to Acts 20 and verse 16, he was in a hurry. In Acts 20 verse 16, it says, For Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia for he hasted if it was possible for him to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. So he was in in haste. He was trying to go as quick as he could to get to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. And so the fact that he now slows down when he gets to Tyre and he's happy to spend a whole week would suggest to us that he's made up time, hasn't he? Okay, he's, he's now ahead of schedule. He's no longer in a hurry. He's landed on the mainland. He's only a little bit from Jerusalem. It's not that far away. And so he's content now to slow down and to spend some time with these believers. And in the course of his stay with these believers, you know, these new friends become concerned for Paul. They're concerned for the journey that's ahead of him. You know, and this is evidently because the Spirit had revealed unto them what was going to happen to Paul. Just read there, verse 4 again. It says, And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. The Spirit's made known unto them what's going to happen. And so their response is to tell Paul, Paul, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. Don't you know what's coming? Don't go to Jerusalem. It's not good. It's, It's not going to end well. And in the Greek here, the idea is that they kept on saying. It's not just that they said it once. 
It's the idea of this was continuous. Throughout these seven days, they kept on saying to Paul, Paul, don't you know what's coming? Turn back. Don't go to Jerusalem. And so this is something they, they continually expressed. There was a genuine concern here, wasn't there, for Paul and for what was about to happen to him. And the wording here in verse 4, you know, when you first read it, seems to suggest that the instruction, the command for him not to go is coming directly from the Holy Spirit. Get read verse 4 there again. The second part, it says, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. And so as you read that verse, it seems that the Holy Spirit is the one commanding him, saying, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. However, it seems best, and we'll talk about it a little bit more later on as well, but it seems best to understand this as the believer's interpretation of what the Spirit's told them. Okay, the Spirit's revealed to them what's going to happen to Paul in Jerusalem, and their interpretation, their response is to say to Paul out of compassion, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. We've seen what's going to happen, so don't go there, do something different. Uh, and so, you know, it's only natural that they would respond like this, isn't it? You know, they're compassionate, loving b- believers, they love him in Christ, and, and they're concerned for him. They don't want to see Paul injured, and so they warn him not to go. You know, the fact is that Paul had already been warned by the Spirit. We saw it in Acts 20, verse 23, that bonds and afflictions were waiting for him. Paul already knew. The Spirit had already been telling him along the way, Paul, this is what's going to happen. And so Paul was well aware that hard times were before him. And he wasn't alarmed by any of this. Paul was convinced that he was in the will of God. He was convinced that he was bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He said that in Acts 20. Verse 24, I think, is he says that he felt he was bound to go to Jerusalem and preach the gospel there and to, to deliver that gift unto the Jews, to the Jerusalem church. He was convinced it was God's will. And, you know, Paul also knew that that was part of God's calling for his life, persecution. Back in Acts chapter 9 and verse 16, the Lord had said of Paul, he said, For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. That's right back at his conversion. The Lord said, Paul, you're going to suffer things for my sake. You're going to suffer persecution. And so Paul saw the suffering before him in Jerusalem as just part of the calling of God, part of God's will for his life. And so Paul is not deterred. Even though all these brethren are basically pleading with him and saying, Paul, don't go. Paul's not deterred from doing the will of God. And we read on now in verse 5, it says, And when we had accomplished those days, we departed and went our way. And they all brought us on our way with wives and children till we were out of the city and we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave one of another, we took ship and they returned home again. In verse 5 now we read that after these seven days, Paul and his companions, they depart and where are they going? To Jerusalem. He's still going down there. He's still continuing on his journey. He hasn't turned aside, hasn't turned back. He's still going to Jerusalem and we see them now all going with Paul to the ship to say goodbye, and they bring their families along. It says their wives and their children are with them. It must have been a sight to behold. You know, you've got all these, this small group of believers here. They all walk through the city together with Paul and his companions down to the docks, and they kneel down on the shore, and they're praying. They're holding a prayer meeting in front of everybody, praying for Paul, praying concerning what's to come. You know, no doubt they're praying for Paul to have faith, Paul to have courage in the face of what's before him, praying that God would protect him, that God would keep him. And once they'd said their goodbyes, Paul and his companions now enter the ship and they continue now to the next place, to Ptolemus, 
uh, and, and spend a day there before they continue to Caesarea. Just read verse 7 there. It says, And when we had finished our course from Tyre, uh, we came to Ptolemais and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. And so they go to this next place and stay there one day before they continue down to Caesarea. And that's where we come to our second point this morning, the warning at Caesarea. We've seen the warning at Tyre by these brethren and Paul steadfastly continuing on. And now we see the warning at Caesarea. In verse 8 we read, And the next day we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip the evangelist, which is one of the seven, and abode with him. And so now they come to the city of Caesarea. And we're told that they, they actually stay with Philip. Philip the evangelist he's called here in verse 8. And he's identified for us as being one of the seven. Okay, and that tells us that he's one of the seven original deacons of the church at Jerusalem. Just quickly turn back to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 and verse 5. <clears throat> in Acts 6 verse 5 it says, And the same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So there we see Philip mentioned. He's one of the seven chosen to be deacons in the church at Jerusalem. He was good friends with Stephen, who Paul had stood by and watched being stoned to death. And here we have Paul meeting with Philip and actually staying with Philip in his house. You know, the last time we saw Philip was back in Acts chapter 8. It's the last time we saw him. And if you remember, he was meeting with the Ethiopian eunuch. Okay, the story we know well, he meets with the Ethiopian eunuch. He, he expounds the gospel unto him and then he baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch after he professes faith in Christ. And so Acts, Acts chapter 8 is the last time we saw him. And at the end of that chapter in verse 40, we see him settling in Caesarea. Just quickly go there. In Acts chapter 8, verse 40, it says, But Philip was found at Azotus. And passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. So last time we saw him, the very last time he was mentioned, he's settling in at this very place, Caesarea. And that was about 20 years ago. Okay, 20 years has passed now in the book of Acts, since Acts chapter 8 to Acts 21, about 20 years has gone by. And so for 20 years, Philip has been faithfully serving in this place. For 20 years, he's been faithfully doing the work of the Lord He's no longer called Philip the deacon. He's called Philip the evangelist. And so that tells us that he's been laboring, hasn't he? In the gospel message, maybe in the, the surrounding region as well as just in Caesarea, he's been faithfully serving God. And in verse 9, we see something of his family. His daughters are, are following suit. It says in verse 9 of chapter 21, And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And so he's, he's brought up his four daughters. They're now serving the Lord as well. And we're told that they have the gift of prophecy. Now, we've seen the gift of prophecy before in the book of Acts. We've talked about the fact that in the early church, people were given this gift. Okay? It was one of the, the sign gifts. It was one of the, the gifts given to establish the church. They would teach uh, others. They would expound unto them maybe something from the future the Lord revealed unto them, maybe a, a message of inspiration, an inspired message from God. These people were given this gift, the gift of prophecy. Now, the fact that it's four young ladies here who have this gift of prophecy shouldn't concern us. You know, we know that Paul later on in 1 Timothy 2 teaches that women are to keep silent in the church. They're not to be teaching 
and preaching publicly in the church. And so the fact that these young women here are prophets, okay, or prophetesses, I should say, shouldn't concern us. They weren't doing it publicly. They weren't doing it in the church. Rather, they would have been ministering unto the women, okay? The men had a limited role in ministering to women. They would have been using their gift to minister to the women. They would have been using it to minister to the children, much like today. In our church here, we have the, the young ladies, the, the women, ministering to each other and ministering to the children. It's exactly the same idea. They were using their gift in the, the place that it was given. And there's an indication that that's the case here because, you see, even though Paul is staying with Philip and in his house are four daughters who prophesy, it's interesting that they're not the ones who give him the message, are they? They're silent. They're not given a message from God to give to Paul. They're not given a message concerning his fate in Jerusalem. It's actually another prophet, a man named Agabus, who has to come and minister to Paul. And so we even see there an indication that they weren't ministering and teaching to the congregation as a whole, to the men and the women. They were only ministering to the women and the children with this gift that God had given them. But it does show us that God has a place, doesn't he? God has a place for the women to serve in the church. He has a, a, a ministry for them. He gifts them as he gifts men for the ministry as well. And so Paul here doesn't receive a, a message from them, but instead he, he receives a message of prophecy from the man named Agabus. Just look there in verse 10. It says, And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And so this man now travels down from Judea and he meets with Paul at Philip's house. And this man should be familiar. We should recognize his name. We've seen him before in the book of Acts, haven't we? Back in Acts chapter 11, Agabus had been the one to prophesy concerning the famine that was coming to Jerusalem, okay, or upon Judea. Just go back to Acts chapter 11 with me quickly. In Acts chapter 11 and verse 27. Acts 27, uh, sorry, Acts 11, verse 27, it says, And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul." So approximately 15 years before this event here in Acts 21, Paul had met Agabus at Antioch. Okay, Agabus had come to Antioch with this, this message, this prophecy concerning the famine that was coming. And as a result, the church there had decided to send relief, okay, to send this relief package down to Jerusalem. And the one who was sent to carry that was Saul, Paul, okay, with Barnabas. The point I'm making here is they're not strangers, Okay, they know each other, they've met before, and, and Paul knows, therefore, Agabus' credentials, doesn't he? He knows that this man actually does speak for God, he's seen it before. He knows that he is a prophet of God, he knows his credentials. And upon arrival here, Agabus now repeats the earlier warnings. He once again gives Paul a prophecy concerning what's coming, except that he does it in a very dramatic fashion. Look there in verse 11. It says, and when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, thus saith the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. He takes Paul's girdle here or his belt. He binds his hands and he, 
at his own feet. And he makes this prophecy that the one who owns the girdle is going to be bound by the Jews and handed over to the Romans. And so once again, here we see Paul is given a very direct, very precise warning about what is to come, what's, what he's going to face in Jerusalem. You know, upon, a, upon seeing and hearing this vivid warning from Agabus, everybody else who's with Paul, their response is to plea with Paul not to go. Look there in verse 12. It says, and we heard these things, both we and they that, uh, sorry, they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Luke includes himself here. He says we. So this is everybody. This, this is Paul's traveling companions, Luke himself. They're all pleading with Paul now. They're saying, Paul, we've heard enough of this. Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. You know, basically their opinion is surely we can finish the journey without you. You know, we can... We can carry on, take the, the offering down to Jerusalem. You don't need to go. You don't need to put yourself in danger. We'll go. You stay here. You go do something else instead. Now, they'd heard enough of these warnings about what was in store that they thought it was better for him to stay away. They thought they were doing the right thing by saying, Paul, turn back. You know, Paul, he had a completely different response. Just look there in verse 13. It says, Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep? And to break mine heart. For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, in spite of everything, he's heard this warning now numerous times, not just at Tyre and it says Reed, he's heard it before this. Time and time again, he's heard this warning from the Spirit. In spite of everything that he knows is in store, and now he's got a very precise prophecy too, doesn't he? You're going to be bound by the Jews and end up in the hands of the Romans. In spite of this, Paul is determined. He's determined to go on and to do the will of God, go to Jerusalem. You know, Paul begins here in verse 13 by saying, you know, what mean you to weep and to break mine heart? You know, this shows to us that Paul was moved by his friend's concern. Okay? We shouldn't think that Paul was so hard-hearted, he was so hard-headed that he wouldn't listen to anyone. You know, he's just so stubborn. He's not listening to anyone. He actually was moved by his friends here, okay, by their, their weeping, by their concern. He says that they're breaking his heart. You see, their grief, their, their concern for him had the potential to weaken his resolve to go to Jerusalem. It actually was wearing him down. He was, he was actually feeling it. But in spite of that, in spite of the fact they're breaking his heart by saying this, Paul still is determined to go on. He's determined to finish the course that God had laid before him. And he tells his friends here, he says at the end of verse 13, he says, For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul is so determined here to continue on. He's not going to turn back. Even though his friends are pleading with him, even though he's heard this numerous times, he's not turning back. He's going to go forward and do what he believes is God's will, even if that means that he's going to be arrested and maybe even die for the cause of Christ. He's not going to turn aside. He's not going to be persuaded to forsake the will of the Lord. You know, we're told that when his friends saw his resolve, that he couldn't be persuaded, that they gave up their attempts and they committed him to the will of God. Look there in verse 14. It says, And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying the will of the Lord be done. You know, when they saw they couldn't change his mind, they stopped and they supported him and they said, all right, we'll commit it to the Lord. The Lord's will be done in this situation. 
Now, you know, the question that's often been asked at this point is, was Paul wrong to continually ignore all these warnings? That is the question that's asked. You see, some have concluded that Paul's headstrong refusal to heed the warnings of God meant that he lost four years in prison and that he accomplished nothing by going to Jerusalem. And some have concluded that, that he was out of the will of God, that he is disobeying directly here the Lord. He's just doing his own thing. However, the evidence from the book of Acts, you know, we've been studying the book of Acts for some time now, studying Paul in particular in his missionary journeys. The evidence from the book of Acts is that Paul's overriding concern, his overriding desire was always what? The will of God. To honor God, to do what God wanted and not do his own will. It wasn't his will, it was God's will. That was his overriding concern at every point, every turn. Now, time and again, we see him submitting to the Spirit's leading. We've seen him turn aside when God barred the way and said, Paul, you're not going that way, turn somewhere else. Just quickly turn to Acts 16 with me. Acts 16 and verse 6. It says, Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. So we've seen it before, Acts chapter 16, twice, verse 6 and verse 7. He's forbidden of the Holy Ghost in verse 6, and then in verse 7, he's, the Spirit suffers them not. Twice the Spirit said, Paul, you're not going that way. Paul really wanted to go there, but the Spirit said no. And so Paul turned and went a different direction. You see, the point is, Paul was surrendered to the Spirit's leading. He was surrendered to the will of God. And so given all that we know about Paul, it seems highly unlikely that he is blatantly disobeying a direct command from the Holy Spirit here. It seems highly unlikely that he's disobeying a command given by God. Indeed, in Acts chapter 23, verse 1, Paul makes a statement which seems to confirm this view. Acts 23, and verse 1, it says, And Paul, earnestly beholding the counsel, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God, until this day. He's standing before the council and he says, I've lived in good conscience before God. Paul didn't feel any guilt. He's, he's been arrested and Paul doesn't feel like he's, he's disobeyed God. He hasn't come before the Lord and said, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm out of your will. I've done the wrong thing. No, Paul is of good conscience. He still believes he's in the will of God. Indeed, verse 11 in chapter 23 suggests that he is in the will of God. God supports him. Verse 11 of chapter 23, it says, And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. The Lord comes and says to him, Paul, this has all been my will. You're here in Jerusalem and you're going to do it in Rome. I'm getting you there. So it seems pretty clear from chapter 23 and from all the other evidence that Paul's not out of the will of God here. He's not blatantly disobeying God. He's actually in God's will. He's doing what God wants. So what then is the point of all these warnings along the way. What is the go with all these warnings that he's received? Well, these warnings from God were not designed to stop him from going. Rather, they were to prepare him for what was to come. That's what it was about. And even with Agabus' prophecy there, you notice that Agabus doesn't say to him, Paul, the Spirit has said not to go. The Spirit has told Agabus what? 
this is what's going to happen. You're going to be bound and handed the Romans. That's what, that's what the prophecy was. He wasn't told by Agabus, the Spirit said you're going to be bound and, and delivered to the Romans unless you turn back, unless you do as you're told and stop. And so even from the prophecies themselves, it's very clear that he's in God's will. This is the warning of God to prepare him for what's ahead. And that's exactly how Paul viewed it, isn't it? You know, that's why he kept going on. That's why he kept pressing forward, because Paul viewed it as warnings from God to prepare him for the ministry ahead. You know, it didn't dampen his zeal. He didn't change his plans. He was determined to do God's will, even if it meant bondage and eventual death. Now, from verse 15, we see that he does just that. He continues on. It says in verse 15 there of Acts 21, And after those days, we took up our carriages and we went up to Jerusalem. He does just that. He, he thanks Agabus for the prophecy. He continues on the way down to Jerusalem. He faces head-on what's in store for him. And as we'll see as we continue in the book of Acts, you know, Paul is arrested. He's thrown in prison. He's eventually then sent to Rome. You know, Paul did indeed end up suffering because he went to Jerusalem. But it was all part of God's will. It was part of God's plan. There was a reason for it all. God used those events to his glory. You know, later from his prison cell, Paul would write this in Philippians 1 verse 12. He says, But I would, ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. He's in prison, and what does he say? Brethren, God has meant this for good. This is all part of God's plan. It's the furtherance of the gospel. That's why God has allowed this to happen. You see, Paul didn't have any regrets, did he? He wasn't sitting in prison looking back saying, whoops, sorry, Lord, shouldn't have gone that way, shouldn't have gone down to Jerusalem. He didn't have any regrets because he knew he had followed God and he would, had done God's will and God was glorified. And so really what we see in this chapter, and indeed in chapter 20 when we saw a little bit of this as well, what we see is a man of God who is committed to doing the will of God. We see a man of God who is who's showing great faith in God, great confidence in his Lord to protect him, to keep him, that God knows best. And he's going to do the will of God no matter the cost. So I guess the question this morning is, you know, are we willing to do the same? Are we willing to do the will of God no matter the cost? You see, God's will for our lives, and we've talked about the will of God numerous times because it's come up a bit during the book of Acts. You know, God has a will for all of us. You see, the fact of the matter is that God's will for our lives is not always going to be easy, is it? God didn't say, if you do my will, you'll never have any suffering, you'll never have any problems, you'll have health, you'll have safety, you'll have wealth and prosperity. God didn't say that. God said, you do my will and I'll take care of you. I'll watch over you, I'll be with you through it all, and it'll be all to my glory. And Christ says that, you know, if we, that we will suffer persecution for his sake. You see, the point is that as we do the will of God, there will be trials. There will be afflictions along the way. There will be persecution. And we're probably heading for more of that in this country. There will be persecution that we have to face. And the point is that like Paul, we have to set our face to do the will of God. And ask God to give us strength. Ask God to increase our faith. Ask God to give us the grace to carry on in those hard times and not turn aside. You see, when those hard times come, there will always be those who tell us to turn aside from the will of God. 
There will be. There will always be those. And, and often it's well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ, isn't it? You know, they're seeing that you're heading for this trial and affliction. You really need to turn aside, do something different. This is hard. Why don't you turn back and do something different? It comes from well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ. But the reality is, if we're in the will of God, we're doing what God's called us to do, then we need to stay the course. Turning back is not the answer. Turning aside is never the answer because then we're out of the will of God. Instead, we need to stay the course no matter the cost. You know, there is a great resemblance here between our Lord's fateful journey to Jerusalem to meet his divine destiny and that of the Apostle Paul. You know, Christ, he was fully aware aware of what was before him, wasn't he? He knew he was going to the cross. He knew he was going to suffer great affliction there for us. He was going to suffer the wrath of God, the Father, poured out on him as he became sin for all of us. And yet even though he knew what was aware of him at Jerusalem, what was before him, sorry, at Jerusalem, we read in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, it says, When the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. You see, Christ, even though he knew what was ahead, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was steadfast. He said to the Father, he said, not my will, but thine be done. Christ didn't flinch in fulfilling the will of his Father, did he? And Paul's attitude here reflects that of our our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, doesn't it? A desire to do God's will no matter the cost. Now, beloved, we should have that same desire as well. The attitude of Christ to do God's will, not our own. Thy will be done, not mine. You know, can we say with Paul, in Acts 20 and verse 24, he said this, but none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. You know, can we honestly say that? But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself. I'm going to finish the course. I'm going to do God's will no matter the cost. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your servant, Paul. And Lord, his, his great faithfulness to you, his faithfulness to your, your will for his life. Lord, even when he was warned of great affliction, of trial, of suffering that was before him, Lord, he was, he was steadfast in doing your will. And Lord, may you help us to have that same resolve. May you help us to follow the example of our Savior. And be willing to say, not my will, but thine be done. Lord, may you help us all to remember this message as we depart. Work in our hearts and, Lord, increase our faith and give us the strength to stand, the strength to do your will no matter the cost. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.